I went then to study my bachelor's and my master's in China. That was for me like a key turning point in my life. Maxime Pada, co-founder and head of business development at Maison 21G. One of the fastest growing tailor-made perfume companies in the world. A lot of people know that there's something wrong with keeping your cash in the bank account. Our parents' generation, most of them, they didn't think about that until 50 years old. Every day you need to make sacrifices. Instead of spending that money, you may want to invest that money for the future. A lot of people say, oh, I would love to invest to build wealth, assets, get abs. All these things need work, need sacrifices. What would you recommend someone in their mid-20s or in their early 30s to do if they want to start taking control of their finance in their future? Again, it's about priorities. Do they really want it? I started to learn Chinese at a very young age. It really opened my mind to another universe, the whole Asia that was completely different from Europe. Speaking the language really helped me to appreciate the culture and it really made me who I am today. What's the best advice you've ever been given? One thing I apply and I think is very, very important is really to... to Our guest today is Maxime. You're a co-founder of Maison 21G. Maison 21G lets everybody design the scent of your soul, a scent fitting exactly who you are, how you look, your vibes, and what you want to achieve in life. In this episode, we'll talk about developing a frugal lifestyle in your 20s, investing and wealth building, keeping up with the Joneses versus saving and investing for your future. And finally, we'll talk about entrepreneurship and valuing a business. So, Max... Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Very excited to start this. Very excited too. So why don't we start with some context about your background? What are the key turning points in your life that define who you are today? That's a, that's a very tough question to start with. Um, so, so I grew up in the, in the suburb of Paris in France. And I think what always drove me is, to, is growth. Like I always wanted to to grow as a person and to grow businesses, to grow as an investor, to really grow. Grow is the key word in my life and in, in what I've always tried to achieve. The turning points that made me who I am today, I think is one of them would definitely be my trips. I went to South America, then to Asia when I was 17, 18. So I was really trying to, to get away as much as possible. And I started to learn Chinese at a very young age, Mandarin Chinese. And I went then to study my bachelor's and my master's in China. So that was for me the, like a key turning point in my life. So you started to learn Chinese before you moved to China? Yeah. Or? Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, I started when I was 12. So that cannot take credit for. It was uh, my dad who, who pushed me to, to do it. Wow, okay. So at the time, actually, I, I was in love with, uh, with anime, with uh, yeah. Dragon Ball Z in particular. And so I wanted <laughs> very to Very Chinese. Learn, uh, yeah, very. Exactly. I, I'll come to that. So I really wanted to learn Japanese. And my dad told me that I will learn Chinese, that it's the same. Quote, he said, it's the same. So it kind of fooled me at the time. And I think he really had in mind that it would help me much more to know Chinese in the future, to succeed in, in whatever I want to, 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 to do, considering that China had the exponential potential and growth at the time. So this is how I started to learn Chinese Mandarin. I didn't like it as much in the beginning because I still couldn't understand my animes. But I kept on going and I learned it. And eventually I started to understand better the culture, the language. I started to love it. And that made me want to go. So I did my bachelor's in Hong Kong first and then my master's in Shanghai, in Trongji. And that was a key turning point because it really opened my mind to uh, another universe, like the whole Asia 
that was completely different from Europe and it really opened my mind. It really, I think, made me who I am today. Uh, I, I won't dare to say a citizen of the world, <laughs> but not only a, a French person, but more like a pluricultural person that, and that really strive in, in different cultural environments. Like I cannot stay in place. I cannot really stay in France. I cannot really stay in Singapore where I'm based today. I really need to have multiple cultures to, to feed me. What made you want to stay in Asia, actually? I think it's really the... the, the so Asia is big, but at first it was China for me. So living in China and start... I think speaking the language really helped me to appreciate the culture and to understand the, the culture and to really deep dive into this this country, this this formidable culture and people there. And what made me stay is really that I could... I was young at that time, and so I really could dive into it and it became a part of me so like when you're young you're really like you're learning a lot you're taking everything in your mind and you're you're building something for yourself then when you're a bit older you're you're a bit uh, a bit more uh, full in your head so i think mm. you have a harder time to to learn that much or to like build up new concepts in your mind but when you're young it really forge who you become and who you are and so china really became part of me the language the culture the people how people behave there it's like it really became me. So that, that's what I really loved. Yeah, okay. Because it's very different from a lot of people who go to, you know, you go to do a university exchange or maybe a work experience and then you just go back home mm. and you get back to your yeah, that, that, to your kind of normal, safe life, yeah. which is what most, pe most people would do in France or in Switzerland or in basically other countries. Yeah. They would come, have an experience, kind of like live the life and then use that on the CV to get a job where they are, mm. but not actually fully embrace all the potential the, for, that, that, that these new economies offer. Yeah, totally. I feel it's like uh, it's something that was quite complex at the time, even building friendships, because as you just said, everyone was just like living after a after year, after a job placement, because they didn't belong. You know, they didn't feel like it was home for them. So they were just coming and going. And so building friendships in, in those places is a bit more complex because you end up like having people living all the time. But once you find someone that wants to stay, it, this person will have a, a very similar mindset to you, you know, because he will have embraced the culture and basically feel like home in this place as well. So really have embracing this, this pericultural mindset. Yeah. So you mentioned about living and kind of growing up in the suburb, having to be kind of on a budget. So let's start talking about kind of frugal lifestyle, but also wealth building and investing, which I know you do a lot since mm -hmm. a long time, actually. And so the first question would be, what's, what's your personal approach to money and personal finances? Money is really a mean, a mean for something. Like it has never been a goal for me, money to, to acquire and to like accumulate money and wealth. It's never been an end goal. And I think for that reason, I might not be the most interesting person when it comes to building astonishing wealth because it's not my end objective. But my objective still needs some money to fuel it as a mean. And therefore, I think when I drew out my, my plan on an Excel when I was 17 and making my budgets for my travel at first, I kind of liked it. So I always liked math and, and Excel sheets and financials. And so I started to, to deep dive a bit more into it and to start to make 10-year plan 20 years plan, 
see what I could build by managing my wealth, my, my very little wealth at the time doing so. And so, of course, I also got a lot of advice from mentors, from my dad, from other people that, you know, were much older and that already had gone through these steps and realized that, okay, real estate is a very safe and long-term investing sector. And so, and in Paris, in France, you are not taxed on added value on your main residence. And so that becomes a way to accumulate wealth and to gain added value on your wealth that is one of the most interesting in France, before cryptos, I may say, <laughs> at the time. And so this is when I think I started and also to say because my dad is in real estate. And so he taught me a bit of all the, the tricks and learnings. And so I started to invest very young in real estate. You start by buying a, a little garage, using leverage from the bank, 80% leverage, little from yourself. And then you sell it sometime after, after refurbishing at a little added value. That was like the, the first deal I did when I was back when I was 17. And that was my first step into real estate, into investments. And I think after that, I started to, so, so back to your question, sorry, because you talk a bit more about the frugality. I think that plus the travels, plus basically my long-term, my long-term plans and everything made me started to calculate all these costs and things and started to, to live basically on a budget, which not, not necessarily means stingy or not, or very close to my money, but just having things planned out. Everything was kind of budgeted on a monthly basis in order for me to save at the end of the month a bit of my money to invest it, to invest mm. it either in me, in my personal growth, be it books for uh, trainings, blah, 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 or travels, or into real estate and later on stocks investments. Okay, awesome. So, and you also told me a couple of times that you had, you know, you started this kind of yearly revenue projections and then you were like, how can I save this year so mm -hmm. I can invest with the actual goal of one day become a full-time investor? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that was really my, my, not my first dream. I think my original dream was really to, to, to have an impact on my community, on the planet, to really have something to be not remembered of because I don't so much care about being remembered, but more, um, to have an impact because I think that would fulfill me more as a person. So at the end, it's a bit of a selfish thing still because it's, it's to, to realize myself, but really wanted to have an impact. So that was the first goal. And then I started to think I need to have the greatest impact that I could, that, that my potential can realize, right? That as me as a person, based on who I am, my drive, my network, the wealth I can build, how much impact can I have? And then I started to to really look into the maximum impact I could have. And I thought that would be through having a fund at some point in my life and drive as much capital as I can into this fund and then drive those capitals into impactful projects. And so this goal of having a fund at some point in my life, impact investing into educational projects or basically the, the UN 17 goals was my, my, my goal at the time to really um, tackle all of these, uh, these issues that society was having. That was when I was 17. And then I, I retro, retro, retro planned back to, to my young age of like what I need to do on a monthly during these 15, 20 years in order to get there at some point when I'm 35. Mm -hmm. 
And so before becoming an investor, I thought I would need to become an entrepreneur because what investors are doing, they are investing into projects, right? And so I really wanted to understand what investors were interested in. So return on capital, but also uh, lots of investors are wealthy and are interested in investing in what is important for them. So I would need to find like-minded investors that would want to impact invest, right? And so I would need for that to be an entrepreneur and to really understand all the, the mechanics of a business and on growing a business and on making it successful. And so to do that and to meet investors and entrepreneurs and to really understand business life, I wanted to start with working in a venture capital fund. And so that's, what, that's how I started. Then in Singapore, after my studies in China, eventually became an entrepreneur much faster than, than expected because the Maison Tonimonji project came into my hand. Where, where do you think, I mean, what's the main reason you think you developed a, a growth mindset so early? Like, is it because you have an example at home that's building wealth or teaching you things? Is it because you actually have the opposite of an example of, at home? Is it because mm -hmm. you have some friends who are in the field? Like there is, everyone has a different kind of story. Or is it like an internal drive that you can't even explain, but you're just saying <laughs> one day I just understood I need to take an Excel, an Excel spreadsheet, calculate <laughs> some compounded interest. It's, it's what happened with me, for yeah, example. Yeah. Like, I don't know why I was just like reading one, two books about investing and, and I started to like do this compounding on Excel spreadsheet and think like, this is amazing. I love it. And I don't even know how, where it comes from. So where, what was the main reason for you? You think you, you, you had this growth mindset that early? I think so. it's a very interesting question. I would need to introspect a lot to, to actually get the final answer, but um, definitely my, my dad was a drive. I think he, he's like a machine, right? Like he wakes up extremely early. He's determined, like he's, he makes shit happen, like, like seriously. He's really, really driven. He has his really, really firm opinions. He gets things done. So I think that definitely pushed me. That was an early drive. He, you know, he educated me. So definitely that, that was instilled in me. But I think then it's, it's my own personal development environment that shaped it. And that came true. I, I, for me, Growth is in everything and everyone and all the time. It's, it's nature's realization, right? Nature is all about growing. Nature never stops growing. Everything never stops growing. Human grow, you know, it's like cycles. And I think for, for me in my personal life, as well as my business career mindset in life, it's always been about growing because that's the natural next step. It's like you don't, you don't stay stagnant in anything you do, anything you, you strive and want to To, to make happen, you want to make it grow. Then it's the, the question is just between sustainable growth, high growth, like how you want to grow, the, the morality of your growth, etc. <clears throat> the impact and consequences of your growth, but everything needs to grow. And so I'm really driven in, in building, making an impact and growing stuff that could be making an impact uh, onto the society. You, you said that you started investing early. You talked about real estate, but you, you also, I think, invested in some other things. What, 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 what are the things that didn't work? Because usually you start and you basically yes, fuck up. That's, that's how it. you learn. So what did you start and fucked up that, you, that made you learn the, the, the investment game better? 
it definitely you always make mistakes. I think that's what shape you as well. So what was taught by my, by my dad that had like 20, 30 years career experience in real estate was successful because the guy knew what to do, took my hand, told me you do that, this, that, it worked. So that path was realized correctly because I had the right mentor to guide me. But I also wanted to do things by myself. So I explored. Get faster, make yeah, more money faster. Yeah, exactly. Real so, estate is too long. <laughs> real estate is long. It's a long-term thing. It's safe. You know, it's a, it's a that stuff. Yeah. So at the <laughs> time, I wanted to to burn the steps. And so I don't know how, I don't remember why, but the Forex guide fell into my hand. And so I went through it. And I was like, whoa, it's super cool. And I understand it well. And I think I can make something do out of it. But no, I did not. I realized that it was, after one year, I think, of trying, I realized that I, I lost not much, but more than, than what I had gained. And so I quickly turned the page uh, on Forex. And I think it's also true another mentor that I had at the time, because I went to do a, an internship in Credit Suisse in, in, in investment bank. And the director of fixed income at the time, who was my, my boss, told me to give up on it. That basically Forex was not going to make me any richer unless I was going to be a, a trader at the bank. Mm. Yeah. So tell us more about your frugal mindset and how it relates to building long-term wealth. And as an example, because it's really, it's kind of funny, like the other day you were telling me, oh bro, I only have like 300 bucks <laughs> to end up the month. And we actually both love because we both understood each other because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of the same. People think, oh, this person like, is making really good money or they, they're building wealth or they're investing, et cetera. But what they don't understand is that most people who are building wealth are kind of cash poor or don't have too much car mm -hmm. cash. Because you might have a lot of assets. You might have a lot invested in your assets, but you basically count this as zero because you don't want to sell your assets, obviously. So how do you approach money on a month-to-month -month basis in relation to this investing? Because you just, you just have this growth mindset and you just have your goals and, and, and at the same time, you're in this very expensive city where, you know, like, for example, you go out, that's a good one also, you go out and the, the girls go, go to, to the table of the dude who is basically keeping up with the Joneses, has the, mm -hmm. the best, the one that has the best table is attracting all the girls. So how do you balance all that out? Because the guy who has the table either... He's already rich, but if he's already rich, either he made it already, either he's from a good family. But it's definitely not building well because that's not how you do it, how you do it. So how do you balance this out, this frugal mindset and the living in a big city like that where everything is very superficial, mm -hmm. expensive, and where there is kind of like game of showing off? That's that's what people do. But that's the opposite of what you should be or what people should be doing when they're building wealth. I think it's all about setting priorities. So it really depends on what are your, your goals and objectives, long-term, middle-term, short-terms. Short I, I, I would lie if I would say I, I never went to, to clubs, I never spent that money on a, on a table or, or on bottles or, or all these, these things that are, in, I, would, I wouldn't say useless, but not creating long-term wealth. So... At the end of the day, it's, it's really about your priorities and my priority being being an investor as soon as possible, not retiring. I, I don't want to retire, but I want to keep on building businesses in a free way. So having lots of time freedom, 
that would mean having lots of basically cash to sustain my lifestyle and to to sustain my time because time is is time is money the, the most important is to have time for me more than any cash money mm-hmm. and so time you you manage to get it by doing what you love and doing what you love for me means accumulating cash and wealth and basically to do to do that you need to have priorities so my priority is building up this wealth through investments and that means that at the beginning of the month to come back to your question of why did i have 300 left at the end of the the month is at the beginning of the month i just take my salary take all the money proceeds that i get from different money placement or or money generating um, businesses and i invest them and so that's the first thing i say whenever i receive my cash And so yeah, that, that's what they call pay yourself first. So in the beginning of the exactly. month, you take 10, 20, 30, 50% of your salary exactly. and you invest it and then you, it's not there anymore. Exactly. Then I cannot use it anymore. And so that's why then I, I kind of spend my money, you know, a bit freely uh, on uh, what you would call a leisure <laughs> budget allocation. And that's why at the end of the, the month, I could end up at, at a very low level of cash because I just spent it freely onto whatever could be fun on that moment. Why? Why is, so there is investing to say, ah, oh, I want to build wealth and kind of reach like financial freedom or freedom of time, freedom of place as quickly as possible. Maybe some notes on that. The, the main reason why people should, should invest is not necessarily only, I want to retire early or something like that, but it's more actually the cash that you earn is being eaten up by inflation so you're losing purchasing power every year if you just keep your cash in the bank and this is made mostly through governments that are printing money every time there is a crisis or a problem and which basically devalues your your currency and at the same time as this is happening since decades and decades you have what we call wage deflation so the wage don't keep up with how much money is printed and how much your the value of your cash is basically going down, which means that the cost of retirement, which is what we talked about, mm-hmm. the, the cost of freedom or whatever you want to call that, increases every year because at the end of the day, retirement or financial freedom or freedom of time or for places, being able not to have as much cash as possible, but to, to have acquired assets that generate you a passive income. So it could be stocks, could be real estate, could be other type of assets and so the problem is if you if if the the value of what you earn doesn't keep up with how much the the cash is being devalued therefore all the assets out there that you need to acquire to acquire this financial freedom are just going higher and higher and you can't keep up so you just need to work longer and longer and so that's the main reason why most people should invest is not is not to just, people think they want to invest to make money, but it's actually to, 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 to just keep up with, with the cost of retirement that is just increasing every year. And so you started, you were 28 now, you started, let's say 10 years ago, thinking about all this stuff. That's very early, actually. Even if you start thinking about that 25 or even 30 years old, it's fairly early. Our parents' generation, most of them, they didn't think about that until 50 years old, because first they would have, a house 
And then you have kids and you have to pay for all that stuff. And then you start to think, oh man, now my kids are out and I can start to think about my retirement. So our generation, we're much more self-conscious and most of our friends want to invest if they're not doing it already. But because they know, everybody knows that keeping this bank in the bank account, I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people know that there's something wrong with keeping your cash in the bank account. But most people don't really pull the trigger because they don't know how to start. So what, what would you recommend someone in their mid-20s or in their early 30s to do if they want to start taking control of their finance and their future? So maybe we could talk about education first mm -hmm. and then second, maybe some practical stuff that I could do. I think first it's, it's about do they really want it? Again, it's about priorities because a lot of people say, oh, I would love to you know, invest or I would love to build wealth. I would love to own assets. I would love to get abs, you know, but all these things need work, need sacrifices. And at the end of the day, it's not about wanting, it's, it's more about like putting in, putting it in the work, you know, like to basically do it. And, yeah. and so my, my advice would be to sit down, set up priorities and say, do you want to only live on, on this short term on the moment, which is amazing, you know, like I, I don't devalue that. It's super, it's the most important for me to live on the moment as dull as it sounds. But at the end of the day, the moment, how many moments do you want to have? And I think longevity is a, is a very big topic for, for me. It's very interesting. And I would love to, to live as long and as well as possible. And for that, it means you need to build up a long-term plan. And so that comes, that's, that's just like how we said it. It means that every day you need to make sacrifices. So instead of spending that money, you may want to invest that money for the future. Instead of eating that cheeseburger, you may want to eat a salad yeah. a bit more often. Basically, uh, it's the concept of delayed gratification. Yeah. And it also makes you, I think, happier because yeah, you, you, you will build more endorphins than, than dopamine, basically. So you will be happier over a more durable period of time instead of just like, as you said, like just gratifying yourself all the time and having super ups and, and downs from this dopamine surge. Absolutely. So you all start with, do you actually really want it? Exactly. Maybe to actually really want it, first you need to be really educated. So like maybe you want to read one or two books, books about investing. Yeah. There's one really cool called Uncheckable by Tony Robbins. There's another one called Money Master the Game by Tony Robbins, which is basically the same, but kind of much longer, much more detailed, explaining all the basics about investing. Once you understand that, you understand everybody can do it. It's not that complicated. The, the financial world makes it complicated, so they still mm -hmm. can justify their jobs, basically. But it's uh, not that complicated. Mentors also. I think what's, what's really important when you're 20, because you're saying what, what, what should you do when you're 20, when you're thinking about it, is to go and, and find someone that did it already. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's so many people that I experienced out there and that can burn the steps for you is just the same value as having a network when you want to be introduced to this or that places when you're building a business. The, the value of network is, is super, super important because they will burn the steps. Yes, today you can go online, you can buy books, you can really make up your, and you need to also make up your own experience, make up your own knowledge, but being guided by someone who actually know and actually experienced any field for 20 years already is, is, is really necessary. It's the most important thing to do. So if you want to invest, go and find investors. Absolutely. Go and do the thing actually. And one of the great way to start on a very practical side is what you said before, pay yourself first. So 
every time you receive your salary, take 10%, 20%, 30% out and just invest it right away. And there's a lot of applications today that automate all this investing process and will invest yeah. for you in, in the stock market. And that's it, basically. It's just about starting. Same way when you start a company. It's yeah. just about starting instead of talking about it. Same as when you start a new diet, same way when you want to gym, work. same yeah. way anything in life, you want to meditate, <laughs> you want to start praying, whatever, like just start and see for yourself. Start, experiment, optimize, but it's really about putting it the action. Is it good to have a frugal yes, mindset in the business world? And why, or is it, or can it be, or is there at some point where it's actually not that good anymore? Mm. First to answer to, is it good? I think it's good because it makes you plan everything. So it makes you really organize yourself, budget and plan everything. And so I was mostly in, in finance and business development, but also uh, on the financial side of the business. And so it makes you look at every single detail. You see, you're basically an accountant, right? So you look at all details, all, mechanis all mechanisms that grow the business. Um, and so this, this frugal mindset, basically what you mean by frugal mindset is really to Allocate resources, right? Allocate yeah. resources. Exactly. So, exactly. So that is basically a financial or a business mindset because it really makes you plan and strategize. And so I think that's, I think it's the opposite. It's like, because I'm a strategist, I had a frugal mindset of allocating mm. resources. And then basically being a strategist, you plan ahead every single action you, you take and steps, you have objectives for each of them. You... IT rate, so you experiment each of the steps until you optimize to the to the number that you're trying to reach for for each of your actions, each of your experiment. But the the bad side potentially of being a strategist is that you don't always take action because you 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 basically sit and strategize for mm -hmm. a long time before you mm -hmm. can actually take an action because you consider every single variable until you find the best hypothesis Paralysis possible. Paralysis by analysis. Yes. Yeah. Very very well described. And the the good thing that happened to me is that I met Joanna, which you had on the podcast as well, who is my, who is my partner for, with Maison21G, the main founder, the main person behind this ID. And she's the complete opposite of me. I'm yeah. a strategist. She's a machine. She's a doer. She goes into things. She, it's also a problem for her because she doesn't, you know, think things too long ahead. Yeah. She really feel, she's more emotional. So she feel that it's going to work. She, she works with intuition and she goes into it. While I strategize a lot. How has your mindset evolved since you started Maison21G in terms of personal growth? What's the impact of building a business in how much you evolved as a person? That's a very tough question. I mean, there's so much to say about it, but I think the, the people is, dealing with people is something that is very challenging on a, on a daily because when you start a business, it's just you, your partners, your ideas. But when the business starts to grow and be a bit more consequent, then you have lots of players to deal with. So you have the suppliers, the clients, the investors, the, 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 the whole ecosystem to, to deal with. And so it's really this relationship with people, I think, that I grew with Maison21G while I was a bit more of a financial strategist guy in the beginning of this, uh, this adventure. At the end of the day, you really have to put your hands in the, in the machine and so go and meet the customer, go and meet the investor, really understand who and who are these other stakeholders, what do they want as well, because that's how the, 
the business will evolve is by satisfying all the different stakeholders of the business, the customers, the suppliers, the, the investors. Can you tell us how Maison 21G started? Yeah. And tell us also how, whether basically the idea, the product is the same today as in the beginning. It changed. So I'll tell you how. So Maison 21G started in 2019. The, the idea originally came from Joanna Monange, who was a creative director at IFF, which is a perfume multinational. They create fragrances and juices with perfumers and deliver those recipes to brands so that they can then sell to, to, to end customers. And so Joanna, by designing all these blockbusters perfumes like La Vie Belle, One Billion, etc., started to get a bit bored because there was less and less budget, more and more budget constraint onto these juices. And the, the end goal of these brands were really to feed the mass. And so Joanna's idea was to go against that and to provide personalized perfume for everyone. For me, I was not so much of a fragrance person, even though I worked with Joanna at IFF. And so I had the jigs of it and I was interested in the, in the field. What I had was more of a, my little experience in M&A advisory and fundraising advisory in a, in venture, in a investment cabinet. And so from my perspective, what was super attractive about this idea was that other beauty industry had been disrupted the skincare, the makeup, they had been disrupted with direct-to-consumer models, with the NVB, their, their digital native vertical brands. So basically online brands that were indirect with consumers that were really engaging with the consumer on a, on a personal level and understanding the trends and answering the trends and being really revolutionizing their industries while in the fragrance industry, we were still quite, it was still quite of an, an old industry with top revolution was perfume centered around perfumers. So bringing a bit more quality into the juice, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it, it, all the brands and the, the top seller in perfumery were based on a Nigeria that would wear it and that would say it's the best perfume you just wear it. There was no transparency, nothing. So the discussion with consumer was not there at all. There was very little um, direct to consumer brands or projects in perfumery that were bringing transparency, sustainability, basically answering all the trends that consumers in the beauty industry were expecting. And so I felt like there was a huge gap. And so her idea was super interesting in a business perspective. And so that's, that's where I started to completely deep dive into it with her building up the business plan, the pitch. And this is how we went on the road trip and started to raise funds. Originally, our idea was very much tech because we thought our assumption was that consumers were wanting to have a very different retail experience. We're wanting to have something, as, as I said, revolutionary, so something very, very different. And so in this tech, tech approach, uh, we started the, the concept with Dylan, the third co-founder that was really the technical guy. That was, he's a machine in everything that is web two, web three, but also mechanical engineering. And so we built machine, a machine called La Source, that was basically an espresso of, the perf of, of, of perfume. So we had capsules that were patented, that were containing the raw essential materials, and that basically when you put those capsules into the machine, click on the button, was creating your perfume creation. That was when we launched in 2019, Maison 21G, really the center of attention. That was what was the brand. 
But ultimately, we realized that consumers loved the experience of crafting, of coming to the shop, of doing a one-hour workshop, sitting down with a scent expert and creating their own fragrance um, by themselves, with their own hands. And so the machine had zero value. Mm. The machine was not even good as a marketing tool. It was really, it became kind of, of useless. And so we had invested all these efforts, all this money into this assumption to revolutionize the consumer journey. But at the end, what customer was expecting was this human feeling, this human touch, this service, this, um, this, this education brought by a human person. And so we turned around that idea and we started to, to invest our time, efforts, and money into building up this workshop experience. And so that was a big turnaround for, at the company, for the company. How, how, long did, how long did you make to, to make this decision? Because you invest a lot of time, you invest a lot of money, and you also have probably like kind of a, your ego. I mean, mm -hmm. ego, because you think you know what yep. people need and what they want, but you're going to disrupt perfume a certain way and then you realize actually people don't necessarily care about that. So how, how, how what's the process there like to make a, a, such a, like basically you, you call that pivoting mm -hmm. in, a, in a startup, meaning like I just, I'm just going to do something completely different or very different as long as it works. And so how quickly did you do that? Very quickly. To be honest, we are not, in love with our ideas at all. And the, as I said, the end goal is to satisfy yeah, stakeholders. It's not me, it's people, uh, me included as a customer, but we need to satisfy everyone. And if people are wanting that, we need to change. And that's no problem to, to turn it around. It's not about conviction. We, you can have conviction, but they must stay assumptions at the end of the day because you need to try them, you need to test them, experiment them. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't work, you change. You change quickly, you adapt quickly. That's the startup mindset any startup should have. Mm. It's to basically adapt to what is the demand. Yeah, you have, you have your North Star, yeah. but you don't know how you get there. And like you try something yeah. and you have to be very kind of low ego and just realize, yeah. I don't care. I'm just going to do whatever is needed or whatever people want to, to reach my North Star. And maybe my North Star is actually in the South or in the <laughs> East. <laughs> But, and so be it, as long as it works. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's customer satisfaction. It's the number that are growing. So if the machine is not needle moving, then bye-bye. Absolutely. So I think you guys raised about 7 million so far, and you played a significant role in this. So how do you value a business? Let's talk about valuing a business in the different stages of a startup to attract and close capital. So let's start with how do you value and justify a startup in a seed stage? Maybe you want to explain what a seed stage is first mm -hmm. and then explain how the kind of valuation and raising fund game takes place in that, in that seed stage. Yeah, so uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of experts out there that can describe this a lot better than I do, but I'll tell you about my own experience. Um, when you're an entrepreneur, basically you have this idea, this gap that you want to, to bring, this idea that you want to bring to life and you need to fuel this idea with some cash, right? To build a team, to build the concept, to build whatever you need to build, the website, the, the store. Um, and to, to, to get this cash, there's two possibilities. Either you go, uh, you, you raise debt, either you raise equity. And so usually when you're a startup, it's very complex to raise debt. And so you will turn to investors. So the seed, there's multiple rounds of fundraising in a startup and in jargon you call it seed for the first one and then series a or pre-series a and then series a and then 
Series B, C, etc., as many rounds as there is into the, the growth lifetime of a, of a company. But the seed round is really the, the original round of fundraising and usually go to friends and families. That's where everyone is usually going because that's the, the, the low-hanging fruit. That's really the, the easiest way to raise money is through friends and family because it's all about trust in the beginning. It's, it's trust in the entrepreneur that this entrepreneur is the MVP and will make this project to life and successful. So in the seed round, it's really, I think that the weight on why I would invest or not is really onto the, the entrepreneur himself. Of course, also on the project. So what is the project potential? So is this idea really re revolutionary? Do I believe in this idea? Is it going to really be adopted by a large, um, large portion of user, of customer, etc.? And how fast can this ID grow and what will be basically my return on capital? So there's a bit of, a, there's, at the end, investors, they want a return on capital, right? So they, they still look for, if I invest X today, what will I get, you know, in three years, five years, 10 years, whenever the exit strategy is mm. planned for the, for the entrepreneur and the startup. And so then you talked about valuations. So in a seed round, in any run, basically, you, you build your valuation onto different, your enterprise valuation onto different methodologies. So the most common ones are, and depending on your business, there's, there's several ones, but the most common ones are DCF, discounted cash flow, company comparatives, and previous transactions. So comparable, sorry, and, pre and previous transactions. So in a seed round, you cannot do, you can, based on your business plan projection, do a DCF, but it's not extremely relevant because it's very hard to predict your uh, forecasted future. Yeah, it's very theoretical. Yeah. And so you mostly base it on what are the industry multiples. So those are the other methodology, the comparable or the previous transaction. So you go into Bloomberg or you go through your network and find out what are the applied multiples for this kind of very similar company to yours. And you apply this same In the multiple. same stage. In the same stage. Yeah. Is, is this, because this is still very third too, is it like, especially in a seed stage where there's nothing out there? Okay, if you're pre-revenue, pre you cannot even do this methodology because those multiple are applied to exactly. uh, revenue. So if you're pre-revenue, it's really... The team? You can still do, you know, a projection, a DCF, etc. But at the end of the day, again, it's about the trust. And so it's, it's really a buyer-seller kind of situation where you say, my company is worth that much yeah, because exactly. I think the potential is that much. But it's, it's, again, it's really about trust. So it's mainly how much leverage can you build as an entrepreneur? And this is mostly on what did I do before? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How successful was I? Yep. And therefore saying I'm almost, by offering you some equity in my company, I'm making you a favor at this valuation. And then it's all a game of kind of supply and demand on whether people, yeah. you find the people were willing to pay this price. Exactly. If you're comfortable to pay this price, then we have a, we have a deal basically. But you also have to consider that if your investor in seed stage is paying X, but that is not, then when you start the business, get revenues, you don't achieve the kind of growth that the investor was promised in the first raising round, your value will then decrease and that's never good to show. Mm. So you have to be humble and also start with um, relevant valuations. Yeah. How does valuation become easier to justify at a later stage? Well, at, at, at the 
early stage, you, you cannot really much justify as we discussed. So it's more about how much the person is willing to pay and how much are you willing to give out as a percentage of your company? Because basically we didn't say, but if you're raising equity, then you will give out a certain percentage of your company to an investor. And so at a later stage, valuation becomes a lot more, not easy to define, but at least you have a lot more assumptions and more uh, data, more data right. and, and metrics that you can use as to, to, build, to build up this valuation that you, that you made. So what you use is, for example, all your historical revenues, then you draft out your business plan for the next year. And this business plan, the, the more data you have in the previous year, the more accurate this business plan could be or should be. As an investor, you will, of course, look at all the assumptions, see that anything is, is credible as an assumption, as growth, growth assumption. And then if it makes sense on what are the projected free cash flow for the next few years, then the valuation will make sense. You can combine this with also using um, the average multiple of similar companies in your industry and say basically the, the same company as me is was sold at this price when she was doing that much revenue. So that's the kind of multiple that I will apply to my own business. Yeah, absolutely. And But at the end of the day, it's just, at the end of the day, you're going to you probably have an idea of the valuation you want to get, and then you will go get the data and get the, the methodology that enables you to get kind of the, the next valuation that you're looking for. So it's basically sales. It's basically sales, but you, again, you don't want to be lying over-promising or under-promising. So you want to be in the spot, and that spot is justified. You're, you're right. You, I can build a, a 10 or 100 million valuation based on assumptions that I would put behind, but and, and it's then how well can I convince, how well can I back it, this, can I back these assumptions? But, but think a bit long, longer term exactly. because the next round is not going to be justified. Yes. If you're too greedy in the short term and get an amazing valuation too early, you might think it's amazing, but it's actually not that amazing in the long term. Because you're under-promising. Exactly. Uh, you're you're, you're over-promising, over yeah. And so this is really what you don't want to be doing. And so that's what we were really careful about is to really put out their business plans and growth assumptions that were reachable for us. And then the valuation is just a calculation of this growth, this business growth potential. Valuation is just an outcome of it based on the, on the, on the multiple that's from the industry. Mm. And so we, we just use rationals that were realizable and then Indeed, the, the, the huge work of an entrepreneur is not building up this valuation, is to actually do the work and make the business grow at the pace and at the level that was promised in this valuation. And so that's then the, the whole entrepreneur's work of like making the business grow. Awesome. So there is a new trend since a few years that people are talking about, which is this crypto, blockchain, NFT thing. So what do you make of this crypto, blockchain, NFT thing as an entrepreneur in the perfume world? Perfume oil? In the perfume, perfume <laughs> world. I think the world's world. Um, it's a hard one, man. It's a hard one. <laughs> On a Wednesday at 8 p.m., it's a hard one. Yeah. No. Um, wait, before going into... I, I'll do a transition with crypto. With this perfume world, as you said, so... Um, what, what's the really fun part in my, in my business today? I think it's to, is the growth. As, as I said to you earlier, it's like, I'm really 
interested into growing stuff, into growing myself, personal development, but also growing my business. And so this growth is both looking at the numbers in details, but also going down in, in the shops, talking to the customers, really understand what's needed. And so in this growth, what I look at is four different le leverage to, to, to grow this company. You will look at market expansion. You will look mm -hmm. at new product developments. Mm -hmm. You will look at optimizing your current, the productivity of your current stores. So that will be basically your, your market check, market share penetration in one given market. So you, you don't build up new, new products. You don't open new markets. You stay focused on your markets and you mm -hmm. make your production factor optimized basically through optimization of the different levels of a store. So if you look, for example, for us of a perfume boutique, it will be a growth of your top line, growth of your bottom line, so growth of your sales and growth of the cash that you get in your pocket at the end of the day, at the end of the month. And so optimizing those numbers is really a day-to-day -day for, for, for me, for us as an entrepreneur, is to really um, look at our growth funnels of customers and increase the traffic, increase the conversion rate of our customer, increase the, the top line and the bottom line of our stores. And so that's the market pressure. I, 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 talk, I talk a bit about it because that's, sure. that's really my fun. Um, but the, the, another thing is also diversification, right? And so building up new product or, or launching even new, new, uh, completely new products is also a way for your business to grow and also to um, edge your risks because you're going to tap into new industries. And so talking about cryptos, because that was your question, um, we, today there's a trend on, you know, all the luxury brands, all the beauty brands, they are, they are trying to tap onto this new trend of blockchain and of NFTs. Mm -hmm. um, so of course it, it, it crossed our mind to see what could be interesting for us to do in this environment. Is it, is a metaverse? Is, is, is it the universe we want to go in as, as a perfume brand? Is it? Basically, the real question was, is it, is it going to bring value to our customers? Mm. That was the most important question, and we didn't want to go into it for a sole marketing communication purpose. And so, Which is probably what most of these big brands do. Every time there's a new trend, big data, I mean, AI now is different because it's very, very, there is like concrete, like very, I mean, there's concrete applications that are, you, no one can ignore anymore. But you talk about data, big data, AI a few years ago, then blockchain. Like most of these big brands, they kind of like do something because it's kind of like a PR play. Like they need to say, oh, we're doing that. We have this department I'm basically focused on that, but there's not probably not much happening. Whereas you are a smaller company, so you need to make a decision on whether there is something practical there that can get out of this. Super true. Completely true. Yes, for us, it's, it's very more much more practical. They have like massive PR budget, so they, they need to be surfing on every trends and be in the latest news uh, to, to, to stay relevant. For us, is more practical in the way that we have much, much limited cash compared to these big brands. Mm. And so we need to decide where we're going to allocate this cash. Is it going to be really relevant to build up our brand, to build up relevance to our customer and to build up market shares? And so we have this idea that is not yet activated, but we've started to work on this idea whereby we could allow customer to own their own perfume recipe. And mm -hmm. so today to own, to, 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 you, you cannot even own a perfume recipe. It doesn't exist. You cannot, as a brand of perfumes, we cannot go to the government and file a patent for a perfume recipe. It's, it's not, you, you cannot have rights for it. 
Um, so blockchain and the NFT technology could help us to provide this good to consumers that today was not being was not possible to to grant to customers because you would give an authenticate an ownership of this perfume recipe to Mr. X or Mr. Y. And why is it relevant for our business is because we are every day creating new perfume creations to you, to, to other consumers that come and make their own perfume recipes. And this would allow us to actually give you an ownership of this recipe that you have created. So you would, it would belong to you. It's much stronger. You could potentially Absolutely. own royalties on it. You could potentially say that it's no longer for sale. You can potentially trade it. So exactly, you can uh, resell it if someone else really exactly. likes it. Exactly. Yeah. So you could, of course, then give it utilities and access to a community. There's many things that you could do through the, the NFT tool. But the, the most important aspect is that we would bring value to the consumer by potentially giving the consumer ownership of this perfume recipe that he would create. And so, so, so what's the actual, to be, to stay very practical, yeah. what would be the main one or two kind of direct impact? Is it, you think people think it's so cool that more people will come by or talk about you, or is it actually, is there a way for you to actually make more money out of that? Like how, what's the actual direct impact of implementing NFTs sure. and, in, in, and tell people actually you can own your own recipe. Yeah. Like recipe. So it's, it's a very good question. I think, again, it comes back to what I briefly discussed earlier on the, the, the performance of the business when you look at all the different levers, but you look at all the, 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 the growth funnel, so your acquisition of, of customers, your activation of customers, your conversion, and then your retention, then your referral, mm. right? And so as a business and through the, the life cycle of a customer, What's very important for us is, of course, the acquisition, because we want to talk to a lot of people and we, we are very happy to grow the community of aficionado. So the, 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 the acquisition, the conversion, because, of course, when you're a customer, you really experience our products, so you really leave our products and, and be our brand. But then what's super important is the retention. So we don't want people to come, have a fun experience and be like, cool, that was Middle21G, and then don't ever think about us anymore. We really want them to become, to adopt Maison 21G as a okay. lifetime, to, to become part of our community, to animate our community, to live with us, and to basically help us grow this business, to be complete shareholders of this business. And so when you create your own perfume, you're already a little step in. It's not like you buy something off the shelf that you can easily replace. It has a bit more of an emotional value because mm -hmm. you created something that is you, that belongs to you, that is your own, that no one else own. But going a step further and making it authenticating the ownership of this perfume recipe, make you the owner of it, make you the, the, the landlord of this, of this perfume. And so it's a way for us to build up a bit more, to go a step further and to build a bit more loyalty into our customer, to make them a bit more part of Maison 21G by owning part of Maison 21G, by owning their own recipe. And as I said, they can even, you know, earn from it afterwards. So it has more than an emotional value. How would they earn from it, for example? If Royalties. someone else says, hey, I want, if someone says, hey, I want the same perfume, then you will 
distribute a part of the profit so of the this perfume to this own, person who owns When you own the perfume recipe, anyone who then would purchase this perfume recipe, you would get royalties out of it. Very cool. Okay. So, so some, it's really so to, build up, to build up loyalty into our customers. That's really the main reason why we thought of this concept. But then there is, of course, a lot of other potential. So, uh, so a new side sense. hustle for people out there in Singapore, in Asia, or actually now in Dubai, who want to build a side hustle is to go to the Maison Technology <laughs> uh, shop. You invest. And then you build a lot of different recipes, you get the NFTs and you, ju you just wait for people to buy exactly. your recipe and then you're going to start to make passive income. Yes. Actually, the, it's very cool. The, it's the very more cool. Maison 21G grow, the more potential you can get from your NFT. Is, is there something, are you thinking about something, so you said kind of like basic people, so the basic step is people build their own perfume, then they can kind of own the recipe. Is there something even higher, like a greater vision for all this NFT thing? that you thought about, but that would be more difficult to implement? Yeah, of course. So there's, there's always a, a long-term plan in everything that we, we think about. Um, I think this idea came to me at first because I really wanted to, to focus on retention and, and mm. building up this, this community mm. of aficionado to have them part of the, of the project. But then there is a, a lot of potential behind. And the idea is to create a marketplace. And that come, that's where come Dylan, the, 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 the co-founder, where... Um, we would be a whole marketplace where those NFT would be dropped and where any, uh, where, where potentially we could then retail any other rare exclusive objects from the luxury industry. So we start with perfume because it's, it's our brand, yeah. but that's what we do. That's what we know. But later on, we would like to, we potentially could provide this service for other brands so that they could build yeah. their own community a, st a step further into their own brand and product. So that's one of the ideas. And then the, the next idea is also to, to, to work on, on artist collaborations because at Maison Energy we love to work with creators because we are creators, we create perfume. And so we love to work with artists that are creators in, in whatever field they do. And so, as you know, perfume is, is intangible. And so we really need to materialize it and to, to, to make it live. And so we want to work with artists whereby they would design something that would correspond to the perfume recipe. So the bottle, the packaging, the art itself, make it very artsy, of, uh, a very artsy representation of the, of the scent. And then we could build limited edition kind of very rare perfumes. So they would be like in a... So on the rarity of the... Build thing. up on the rarity awesome. of the thing. So exclusive yeah. collection yeah. with very exclusive kind of boxes, materials, and go a bit more uh, in-depth and less math. Mass. Awesome. What's the best advice you've ever been given? It's a tough question. <laughs> like, what's a, like that what's an advice that you think you've heard that is really relevant to your life mindset and that you think would be really useful for people to think about? One thing I, I apply and I think is very, very important is really to, to take your time. Take, okay. take your time doing everything you do. But that's again the discussion we had on, you know, strategizing and not taking too much time. At some point you need to jump in the water, but take your time. Make sure that what you're going to do is relevant to yourself, is going to really move the needle to what you want to achieve in life, to who you want to be. Stay aligned with, with who you are basically and 
and take a step back always to build stuff durably and to build yourself durably. So take your time. That's when I need, I need to apply more actually. Yeah. Growth is good, but sustainable growth is much better. I'm more the kind of guy who does the crazy growth, falls, <laughs> crazy growth. Back like basically you, it's called um, mean reversion. So you grow exponentially, mean reversion, yeah. grow exponentially, mean reversion. It's a bit more, um, yeah, it's a bit more crazy for the, for the mental health and everything, but it's, it's definitely a good advice to take from you. If there was a summary or key takeaway that people should remember from today, what would it be? It's really to, to, to write, write down your objectives, write down your priorities. It's, it's indeed take your time. It's basically take a step back, reflect on really what you want to achieve if you want to achieve and then retro, retro plan. So look at, at, at 30 years, at 20 years, at 10 years. I mean, our life is very short, so let's make it, make the best out of it, right? So let's maximize um, all the, the moments that we can have in it um, by, by basically planning a bit better. But that's also my, my weird OCD mindset to plan everything and to, 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 to have control, to have basically boundaries in the mess that I create inside. Thank you so much for your time, Max. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Thank you, everyone, for a listening. Pleasure. And, a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. Please smash the like button and give us your feedback in the comments. Highlights we will post it on YouTube, Twitter, Substack, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And I'll see you all in the next episode.